Well, welcome to Sojourn Church. Uh, if this is your first time, I mean, we're just grateful that you're here this morning. Uh, my name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here and uh, just looking forward to spending this time in God's word this morning. We're going to continue to be in the book of Numbers. Uh, and so if you need a Bible, would you just raise your hand and we'll have some folks bring a Bible around to you. So just uh, keep your hand up until they find you. We'd love for you to be able to read along with us this morning. Uh, so that you can just track with us. And if you don't actually own a Bible, we'd love to give that to you as a gift. Uh, we want you to be able to have God's word. Uh, we believe that uh, we learn more of God and more of ourselves in light of who God is through his word. And so if you don't have the scriptures, we want you to have a copy of that. Man, I hope this series has been uh, been good for you as an individual and good for us as a church. That it's been encouraging to you, challenging to you. I hope that you've learned more about who God is. Uh, I hope that as you've learned more about who God is, that that's fostered more worship uh, in your heart and in your life as we've spent this time uh, over the last few months walking through the first five books of the Bible. I've really enjoyed this time just preaching through uh, these books at a high level just to help us to see God's plan of redeeming his people uh, with sin coming into the world. Even as we go all the way back to the beginning of the scriptures, we see God's plan being unfolded before us. So we're going to finish up the book of Numbers, not today, but next week. And then right after that, we're going to jump into a, a short series during Advent, uh, which is a time where we anticipate the coming of Christ, the first coming of Christ that we celebrate at Christmas, but also look forward to the, the second Advent when Christ returns again. And it's crazy to think that in two weeks, we're going to actually be beginning that time, that it's already time for us to be looking forward to celebrating Christmas together. After that, we'll jump back into our Torah series and wrap that up with a book of Deuteronomy, finishing up at the end of January, beginning of February. So before we jump into the book of Numbers today and we open up the word, let's just spend some time praying and ask God to help us to uh, be attentive today. Father, we, uh, we are grateful for your word. We're grateful that uh, from beginning to end that what we see in your word is that you are a God that pursues his people and so, Lord, as we look today at a text that might be confusing in some ways, Lord, I pray that we would just understand it, that we would see the importance of it in our own lives, that we would heed the truth that's contained in the book of Numbers for us this morning, see it tied together with all of the rest of Scripture. And so, Lord, I pray for your spirit to do a work today. As I've been thinking about this sermon this week and, and thinking about this church and being hopeful, Lord, for what you might do today. So I pray and ask again, Father, that by the power of your spirit, that you would move in the hearts of your people today, that you would call people to yourself that don't yet know you. But Lord, I just pray that your spirit would do that work. It's not anything that I can do to, to bring that about. It's only by the work of you, God, that anything good can come. And so we ask, we beg uh, that you would do that this morning in this place. And that we would leave here uh, encouraged, challenged, changed, because we sat here and sang together and heard your word preached uh, and read this morning. And so we give this time to you. We pray that it be honoring to you, pleasing to you, and that you would help us to just worship you because of what we learned today. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Well, go ahead and grab your Bible and open up to Numbers chapter 21. That's where we're going to be this morning, Numbers chapter 21. Uh, so I'll give you a second to flip over there. We're not going to read the whole chapter. We're not going to preach through the whole chapter of, uh, of Numbers 21. In fact, I think this morning we're just going to be in about six verses in this chapter. So I want to read all of those verses for us this morning as we begin uh, to just give us the context a bit about uh, what's going on. So Numbers 21, starting in verse Four. From Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people. And they bit the people so that many of people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people and the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Do you ever hear stories sometimes or think, man, that can't be true? Or that's really weird? That's really strange? Well, this story in these six verses in the book of Numbers is a weird story. I mean, for those of you that aren't Christians, you may be thinking, see, this right here is why I don't believe the Bible. I mean, poisonous snakes, what's up with that? I mean, they're coming and biting people and you just have to look at a a stick and then that heals everybody. See, that's exactly why I don't think the Bible could be true. But at Sojourn, we're committed to preaching all of God's word. So whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, this story in this place in God's word in the book of Numbers is relevant for you. So to give a bit of context about what's going on as we see these serpents slither into the camp of Israel... God's people have been wandering around the desert. God had called them to go into the promised land. We looked at that at Numbers 13 and 14, and we see that God's people rebelled against that. They said, we're not going to go. We're fearful of this. And so God said, well, instead of you going in, what we're going to do is we're going to wander around the desert for 40 years until all of you die off. And the new generation will go into the promised land. So at this point in time, the people of God have wandered around the desert for many years now, and several significant things have happened. Miriam, Moses' sister, has died. Aaron, Moses' brother, has died, who was the high priest, who was Moses' right-hand man. He now has died. And Moses himself has committed a grave act of disobedience, which we will look at later in our series. There's still a bit of heaviness of what seems to be a dire reality for God's people. Are we ever going to get there? Are we ever going to cross into the promised land? Now even the leaders of our people, of this people, are dying off. What are we going to do? But God, as we've seen throughout this whole series, is faithful to his plans and he's faithful to his people. God's people will enter the promised land because God said that they would. At the beginning of Numbers 21 We learn that the people of God have just had a victory over the Canaanite king, one of the Canaanite kings. And it was at the same place that they were defeated by the Canaanites back in Numbers 14. 
when they rebelled against God in Numbers 13 and 14, they said, well, they decided they were going to go up and try and attack the Canaanites on their own strength, but they were defeated. And at the same place, with the same group of people, they actually have victory. There's this, this, this place in Numbers 21 is a transition. This is a, a picture of a transition that's happening between the old generation that was disobedient to God and this new generation that's coming to be God's people that is going to enter into the land that God promised them. And so there's hope for this new generation. Perhaps they're not like their parents. And with that, we pick up in verse 4. God's people continue to traverse the wilderness road, but notice what it says. They set out by way of the Red Sea. They set out by way of the Red Sea. And with that one direction from God to give them the direction to head towards the Red Sea, it says that they become impatient on the way. God, you said that we would enter the land. You said that we would possess it. And now we're heading back toward the Red Sea. They're impatient because it seems like they're regressing instead of progressing towards the promised land that God had said he would give to them. But sojourn, let's remember what we preached on two weeks ago. The way is narrow and hard that leads to life. See, this new generation has forgotten an old lesson. Following God, even if we don't know what he's up to, is always better. Following him, even if we don't know what he's up to, is always better. But unfortunately, what we see here, what we quickly find out is that this new generation, while different in some respects from their parents, are very much the same. There's still a rebellious heart, a rebellious attitude. The apple does not fall far from the tree. Look at verse 5. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. The people speak against God and against Moses in a familiar chorus of outright rebellion. You brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness. See, though God has said that he's going to bring them into the promised land, they still have this rebellious, contentious heart, just like mom and dad. Now, I don't know about you, but I read this and I think to myself again, seriously, Like, are we doing this again? Like, how many times does God have to show his faithfulness? How many times does God have to show that he's going to bring them into this place, yet they still respond in the same way when the going gets tough? They want to pull out and complain and and rebel against God. But let's be careful in reading this story from a third-party, objective point of view. That as we read this story, that we don't see ourselves as Moses. We certainly don't see ourselves as God. And if we do read ourselves into this story, then who we are is the rebellious people of unbelief. Notice what they say in their accusations. They say there's no food. That's completely false. God's provided food for them over and over and over again. They say there's no water. That's false. We could go back just the chapter before in chapter 20 and see that God provided water for them. It says it came out of the rock abundantly for them. And then they give this damningly cold statement. We loathe this worthless food. God has provided bread from heaven for them every day, provided for them each and every moment along the way. Yet they say to them, we loathe this worthless food. They despise what God has provided for them. And as they despise the provision, they despise the provider. 
God is not pleased. And so God brings discipline. Verse 6. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. There's no warning. Fiery serpents, poisonous snakes are sent among the people, and they bite them, and many people die. It's pretty straightforward. They die in the wilderness in the midst of their disobedience. Now, as I was thinking about this this week and thinking about trying to visualize the fact that there's probably around 2 million people at this point in Israel, as the people of Israel, and all of a sudden this, this mass of fiery serpents, poisonous snakes, come into the camp and begin to bite these people. And so I was thinking about what does snake venom do? What does poison from a snake actually do? Well, there's three different kinds of venom that can do three different things when someone's bit or an animal is bit by a snake. Some venom is a cytotoxin. It attacks the body. It makes the muscles and cells begin to break down in the body. Some venom is a hemotoxin. It attacks the blood and the cardiovascular system, causing the heart to arrest and the blood to begin to slow down and thicken so it can't flow any longer. Some venom is a neurotoxin. It attacks the brain and the nervous system, beginning to shut it down so that the the creature, the person, or the animal can no longer move or function as they normally would, essentially paralyzing them. But all of them, all these types of venom have the same goal, death. Sojourn, the wages of sin is death. And this is a very real picture of that reality. But we have to kind of stop and ask ourselves this question, what's up with the snakes? Like, why does God send snakes in? I mean, you sit back and think, was God like, man, I've tried so many things to get them to listen to me. I know, let's send snakes in. Maybe that'll get their attention. Or is it just the fact that they're hanging out in the desert and there just happens to be a lot of snakes around. So that's a good thing to annoy them with or frustrate their rebellious plans. Now, there's a lot more to sending poisonous snakes than just for the sake of sending poisonous snakes. See, snakes were a sign of power and sovereignty in Egypt. Pharaoh himself, the king of Egypt, oftentimes wore a headdress with a snake on it, a viper or an asp or a cobra of some sort on his head. God's people have continued to say over and over again, let's go back to Egypt. I wish we were back in Egypt. Life was better when we were back in Egypt. But do they really want to be under the power and sovereignty of snakes? But perhaps this symbol of snakes goes back even further. It goes all the way back to the garden. If we remember from Genesis chapter 3, as Adam and Eve dwell in the garden in perfect relationship with holy God who's created them in his good creation. We see a serpent who slithers in among God's people. And he sought to bring them under his rule and his reign. And when Adam and Eve, God's first people, our first parents, they didn't trust that God was good. When they didn't believe that his commands were for their joy. When they didn't see obedience as leading to life. They chose to be under the rulership of the serpent. And the grumblings here in Numbers 21 are essentially saying the same thing. We would rather be enslaved to wickedness than to trust and follow holy God. 
But the false kingdom of the serpent has been, is, and always will be about the same things. Slavery, darkness, and death. See, here God gives a very visual and physical picture of the reality of rebellion. When snakes rule, death reigns. But as it often does, discipline from God leads to repentance. Look at verse 7. Verse 7, and the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. We see the people confess their sin, and then the people ask Moses to do for them once again what he's done countless times before, to intercede on their behalf, to be a mediator between them and God and God and them, to come before them and plead their case for grace. And Moses is gracious, and he prays for his people, the end of verse 7 tells us. And God responds with grace, but he also responds with a means of bringing salvation from these serpents. Look at verse 8. And the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. God gives pretty straightforward directions and instructions on what to do. Make a snake, lift it up on a pole, and if someone is bitten and he looks at it, then the the effects of the poison will no longer be there. The venom will not kill the person, but they'll be spared. All they have to do is look at the very thing that's killing them. See it lifted up on a pole and destroyed by God's power alone. But this looking is not a quick gaze. It's not a quick glance. It's not a head nod in that general direction. It is a fixed gaze looking intently at this snake on the pole until the venom stops coursing through their veins. But let's make sure we understand that this snake on a pole is not some magical or mystical remedy. This serpent lifted up showed Israel their sin and it showed them a picture of God's grace. It was an opportunity to trust God. It was an opportunity to place their faith in him as their only hope for salvation. If they didn't by faith look at this pole, believing that God would heal them, believing that God would stop the effects of this venom in them, then they would surely die. So it's an opportunity to exercise faith. God is the one who brings the salvation in the midst of their rebellion. But notice God doesn't remove the discipline from them. He doesn't take the snakes away. The snakes are still there. He doesn't remove the discipline, but he provides restoration from their disobedience. He gives the antidote to the poison. And ultimately, salvation for this new generation comes through judgment. As God's judgment comes down on the camp, they realize their need for his grace. They realize their need for salvation that comes from him and him alone. See, faith is necessary for salvation. Without it, the venom had its full effect and death was always the end result. There is no other way. And in verse 9, we see that Moses does what God says and it works. They, they craft this bronze serpent and they put it up on this pole. And when someone's bitten and they look at this by faith, believing that God would heal them, then it actually brings healing and they would live. I mean, this is a strange story, right? I mean, what what do we learn from this? What are some of the lessons that we can pull out from this? Perhaps we could see the importance of obedience, that we need to obey God, that we need to submit to Him and follow Him. Perhaps we see the importance of faith, 
believing God to be who he says he's going to be and do what he says he's going to do. Maybe we see a lesson of gratefulness, that the people of God should be grateful and not be complainers and not grumble. Maybe we see a picture of God's grace. It's a strange story, but there's more to it. It's more relevant and applicable to our life than just these face value lessons. It's relevant for us. It's important for us to spend this time in these few verses in Numbers 21 because Scripture references this story again. It's relevant because it's a part of the grand narrative of redemption that's weaved throughout all of the Bible. Because, see, it's not just Scripture that references this story. It's Jesus himself who references this story. Flip over with me to John chapter 3. John chapter 3 in your Bible. In John chapter 3, we see Jesus is about to have an encounter with a man. This man's name is Nicodemus. And Nicodemus is a Pharisee. And Pharisees are the super religious people of Jesus' day who Jesus over and over again exhorts for their outward religiosity, but their hard hearts towards God and toward him. But Nicodemus comes to Jesus in the night to talk with him because he recognizes that Jesus has come from God. He's observed him. He's listened to him. But Nicodemus is confused, and so he wants to chat with Jesus to try and clear some things up. But Jesus cuts straight to the heart with Nicodemus. Look at verse 3. Jesus says to Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. But Nicodemus doesn't get it. Look at verse 4. It says, Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Nicodemus is thinking, wait, Jesus, you're saying in order for me to see the kingdom of God, then I need to be, go back into my mother's womb. I need to be physically born again. So Jesus repeats and rephrases what he's just said. Verse 5, Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Nicodemus still doesn't understand what Jesus is saying, but Jesus drills it down for Nicodemus in a way that he, a student of the Old Testament, would be able to understand and relate to. Saying, okay, I'm going to give you a picture, an understanding of what's going on here, what needs to take place. Look at verses 14 and 15. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Nicodemus, you and all of humanity are physically alive, but spiritually dead. You are spiritually dead because of your rebellion and sin. It doesn't matter your family background. It doesn't matter how much you know. It doesn't matter how much you have. And just as Israel was bitten by poisonous snakes and going to die, so you too will suffer eternal death because of the poison of sin that leads to death. The wages of sin is still death. Sin is rebellion against God. It's declaring in word and in deed, thought and action, that you want to rule over your life. That you essentially want to be the king. That you want to be the Lord. That at the end of the day, that you desire to be God and don't want God to be God in your life. That's what sin is. It's like a poison. It's like a poison that comes from the fangs of the serpent in the garden who said to Adam and Eve, follow me and you can be like God. 
See, the snake was there, but just as the snakes in Numbers 21 were a manifestation of Israel's rebellion, so Adam chooses to rebel. He chooses to rebel. And when the rebellious venom entered our first parents, it affected all of us. So that all of us are now born with poison in our veins and our hearts. We now continue to willingly and purposefully and wantonly choose the false kingdom of the serpent. And just as it did for them, so it does for us. The only fruit that it ever bears is death. That's what sin does. The poison of sin affects every aspect of who you and I are. It is pervasive and unrelentingly so. It's a cytotoxin bringing about sickness, disease, and death. It's a hemotoxin making our hearts like stone so that we're unable and unwilling to worship God rightly or follow him fully. It's a neurotoxin affecting our minds, our thinking, our understanding Our actions, we have a wrong view of God and a wrong view of ourselves. And the only remedy to this is to be born again, Jesus says, not physically, but spiritually. You need to be born again. You need to be made new. You need to be made alive. That's the only remedy and the only way for you to be born again is to do exactly what Israel had to do by faith. To look to the means by which God is bringing salvation. By faith to look to him who will be lifted up and believe that he is the son of God and the savior of the world. Then and only then can you have eternal life. See, Jesus defeats Satan, sin and death. That old serpent also tempted Jesus. He tempted Jesus to come under his rule and reign just like he did with Adam and Eve. But instead of listening to a forked tongue. Jesus listened to the words of his father and he obeyed. Jesus defeats sin. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, it says he himself, Jesus himself, bore not his sins, our sins, in his body on the tree. That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. He, he defeats sin. It no longer has that same effect of death in your life. And Jesus defeats death. He destroys the sting of death, which is the result of sin. And he does it by dying himself and being raised again to new life. Listen, the people of Israel had to look on the very thing that was killing them. And you and I have to look to the one who becomes the thing killing us. Jesus became sin for us. He became sin for us. The poison of our heart, the poison of our life, Jesus takes on. He reaps the consequences of our faithlessness and our rebellion. And when we look to him, when we believe in him as our only remedy, as our only hope, then we are forgiven, we are cleansed, we are made alive, we are given new hearts so that we can truly worship God, so that we can follow him in obedience. Sojourn Jesus is the only remedy to the poison in our hearts. He's the only remedy, just as the lifted up serpent was the only remedy for Israel. See, the serpent came into the Garden of Eden amongst Adam and Eve to try and destroy God's image bearers. But the serpent wouldn't win. 
In Genesis 3.15, we've looked at this over and over again throughout this series. We see that God makes a promise to his people in the midst of discipline. The snake will try to bite the heel of the seed of the woman, but the snake will not win. The seed of the woman will ultimately crush the head of the serpent. And it is in and through Jesus so that we see that that promise becomes a reality. Jesus crushes the head of the serpent. And he did this because he loves us. Look at John three sixteen and 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And what great love the father has bestowed on this world that while we long for Egypt in the false kingdom of the serpent, he sends his son not to bring judgment, but to bear it, not to condemn us, but to save us. Jesus is lifted up on the cross that all who look to him might be saved now and forever. Man, that is absolutely incredible, unfathomable, amazing grace. Grace upon grace upon grace to us. But the very thing that is killing us, that we look to him who becomes that for us so that we might be set free from it. Sojourn, this is a matter of life or death now, just as it was for Israel in the wilderness. Look at verse 18 in John 3. Whoever believes in him is not condemned But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. Very simply put, apart from Jesus, you will die in the wilderness. Now the application of this text is not so much two points as it is directed at two groups of people. In Numbers 21, we see that there's two groups of people. There's those that have looked at the lifted up snake and those who haven't. And the same is true today. There are those who have looked to Jesus and there's those who haven't. John 3.18 tells us that we are either condemned because of our sin or not condemned because we've believed in Christ who died and was raised. And so if you've not looked to Jesus to save you from your sin, I want to call you to look to him today. By faith, turn away from rebellion. Turn away from trying to run your own life and turn to Jesus. Faith is necessary for salvation. Without it, the venom of sin will have its full effect and death will be the end result just as it was for the people of Israel in Numbers 21 who didn't look to the lifted up snake. But listen, faith in Jesus, looking to Jesus is not a quick glance. It's not a head nod in his general direction so that you can just go on living life with your ticket to heaven punched. Faith in Jesus, looking to Jesus as the only remedy is not like getting a flu shot. It's like getting a heart transplant. Your chest cracked open. Your old heart that's infected with poison and every valve and every ventricle is removed from you. And you're given a new heart that beats with the rhythm of true worship of the one true and holy God, your king and your savior. So looking to Jesus for salvation is a fixed gaze. It's looking intently, knowing, believing that he's your absolute and only hope for life now and forever. It's not insurance. Man, you're putting everything into trusting in Jesus, just as Israel had to look intently until until the venom stopped coursing through their veins. 
There's no pre-qualifications. You don't bring anything to the table. All you need is need. And Jesus is not a band-aid. Until you look to him who was lifted up on the cross and who rose again, you are a dead man walking, a dead woman walking. And he is the only one that can bring you back to life. So I implore you today to truly look to him today. See, I think there's some of you in this room that, that know that you've never looked to Christ. You've never trusted in Christ. And so I implore you, I, I want you to come to know Jesus today, that you would fix your eyes on him, that you would trust in him, that you would believe in him for the forgiveness of your sins and eternal life. But I fear there's some of you in this room today that think that you've looked to Jesus, but you've just kind of glanced and you kept moving along. Thinking, I just need to look real quick. I get a little bit of Jesus and then I'll keep moving. And I hope that I have life from that. But there's no faith in that. You're just tucking Jesus in your back pocket in case things don't work out for you. Man, no matter where you're at, I want you to look to Jesus. Look to him. Come to him today. Now is the time. You need to realize your desperate place apart from him. That apart from him, that you are going to die in the wilderness. Acknowledge your sin. Confess to God. Ask him to save you and forgive you based only on what Jesus has done for you. For those of you that have looked to Jesus, for those of you that have been given new hearts, I want to call you to something today as well. I want to call you to look to Jesus in faith also. See, life is a life of faith because life is a journey in the wilderness. When the people looked at the bronze snake, as we said, they couldn't look at anything else. It was an intent focus. And so you and I, if we already know Christ, if we've received salvation, if we have a new heart, then we need to continue to intently focus on Jesus. And here's why. Our hearts have been changed. Life has been given to us. Eternity is secure if we've truly repented and believed. But that old serpent still lingers until Christ returns. And while he can't ultimately kill you, He can seek to destroy you and maim you and hurt you. A forked tongue relentlessly continues to speak death into your life. And his words always begin with, did God really say? Did God really say? But sojourn, the remedy is still the same. As we intently look to Jesus, the poison of sin and the serpent is abated. This is why you don't look to, just look to Jesus once to be saved and then move on. You look to Jesus always to continue to be made like him. It's a constant necessity. We never move on past that because the poison of sin can still manifest itself in our hearts and our lives. It can come in the form of pride or anger. It can come in the form of lust or malice or envy. It can come in the form of strife in relationships. It can come in the form of sexual immorality of any kind. It can come in the form of lying or deception, slander and gossip. It can come in the form of laziness or greed, judgmentalism or favoritism. It can come in the form of control or anxiety. It can come in the form of grumbling and complaining. But all of these things seem so ridiculous when we compare them to the riches of grace that we received in and through Christ. That we were enemies of God, but now he calls us sons and daughters. That we were destined for death, but now we have eternal life. But there's an irrationality to sin as the neurotoxin has its effect on us. We need those moments where we look back to Christ and say, yes, Jesus is better. 
Jesus is better. This sin, the promises of this sin, whatever the, the serpent promises as life always leads to death. And Jesus, as I look to him, reminds me that only in, in and through him is life found. And I'm readily aware of this in my own life, sometimes more acutely than others. I was gone all last week, not this past uh, seven days, but the, the week before that at a conference and a, and a retreat, planning retreat. And I took last Monday off, this past Monday off, just to spend some time with my family. We were eating dinner at Chick-fil-A in the mall, as we do often, and, uh, and going to run some errands. And so we were eating there, and I was, I, I was tired from the previous week. It had been a good week, a productive week, but in general was just feeling tired. But hear me on this. Being tired is never an excuse for sin. It's never an excuse for sin. All it does is drop your filter and reveal what's already going on in your heart. In the span of 10 minutes, I sinned against my wife twice with my words. And in the midst of that, realized that I had some lingering resentment for another person. I made her feel unimportant and undervalued. That the ministry that she's seeking to be faithful to is not as important as what I do. Not as critical as what I do. And sometimes it's just flat out inconvenient for me. I said something, made a comment about someone else that was seasoned with resentment. And, and I kind of apologized for that. But in the midst of apologizing for that, my wife was seeking to encourage and exhort me in that. And as she was doing that, I made another smart aleck comment towards her. Boom, boom, boom. Just nastiness rolling out of my mouth in short order. The Apostle James is right. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father. And with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Oh, they ought not to be so in my life. And I hate my sin. And I hate the manifestation of poison in my heart because it's out of the heart that my mouth speaks. But Sojourn, I can't see that and think. I need to try harder. I need to make sure I don't say things like that. I need to clean myself up. I need to. I need to. I need to. The only thing that I need to do is lift my eyes to the man upon the cross who took my sin upon his shoulders and declared to me, it is finished. See, he's the only one that can remove the remnants of poison that remain. He's the only one that can make me brand new. So I need to look to him. I need to look to him and not try and do that on my own. Listen, when you sin, Jesus doesn't scoff at you. He doesn't roll his eyes at you. He doesn't shake his head at you. His arms are open wide and he says, come to me. I shed my blood for you. And now I'm going to change and transform you to be more like me. Sojourn, you and I continually and constantly and desperately need Jesus. 
So let me ask you this this morning. Are you desperate for Jesus today? Are you desperate for him today? Or has the cross of Christ just become a transaction for you? Just like a business deal. We signed on the dotted line. Life has been given to me and now I'm going to move on with my life. And are you desperate for Jesus today? All of life is about faith, which means all of life is about repentance. But repentance is not about focusing on your sin. Repentance is about focusing on Jesus who paid for your sin and took away your sin. About following him. It's about abiding in him. It's about believing that his commands are for your joy. That his kingdom is good. That following Jesus is better. Looking to Jesus helps us persevere in faith on the wilderness road. Even at times when we feel like we're heading back towards the Red Sea. Looking to Jesus reminds us that that's not the case. That God who began a good work in us will bring it to completion. That he will bring us all the way home as long as we continue to fix our eyes on Christ. Have faith by looking to Jesus. And this is for all of us this morning, myself included, but perhaps very particularly for some of you this morning who are burdened and broken by your sin or for those of you that find yourselves cold and indifferent towards it. Look to Jesus once again. He never tires of mediating for you. His blood is sufficient for you always. And sojourn, the size of our sin is always overshadowed by the magnitude of his mercy. So look to him again. Place your faith in him again. Let me close with one last thought. This is the truth that we believe, but it's also the message that we proclaim. Looking to a snake on a pole to be saved from poisonous snakes seems like foolishness to the world. But so does the cross of Christ. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. It may seem weird. It may seem strange. But it doesn't mean that it isn't the remedy. See, when we share Christ with people, we should not fear their jeers, ridicule, or rejection. We should be saddened by it. Because we know, we believe, we have experienced the cross of Christ as the power of God for salvation, for life, for saving us from the poison in our hearts that would have left us dead in the wilderness. We should be saddened by it, but we should also have hope. Because in the depths of our hearts, in the disposition of our minds, that was us. But God saved us. So go and tell people about the God man who was lifted up for you who died for your sin, who was raised again to new life for you, that you might be freely and fully forgiven. Sojourn, let's not wander in the wilderness. Let's be purposeful in our journey, seeking to make much of our God and Savior in all that we do, to live lives of worship to the one who will bring us all the way home to be with him forever and ever. Amen. Israel, had a sign and looking to the snake. It showed them their sin and it showed them God's grace. But you and I have a sign as well, an ongoing sign that reminds us of our sin, but reminds us of God's unfathomable grace. Every week we come to the table to be reminded and refreshed in the reality that Jesus has won victory for us. 
He gave his body. He shed his blood that you and I might be set free from eternal death and given eternal life. And so as we come forward to the table this morning, let's rejoice in the good news that Jesus is our only remedy. Let's be reminded to intently and continually set our gaze on him in all that we do for his glory and for our good. For those of you that are not followers of Christ, I would just ask you not to come forward this morning. Because as we come forward, as we take a piece of bread, as we drink the cup, what we're declaring is that we are absolutely desperate for Jesus. And so if you're not desperate for Jesus, if you haven't yet experienced his grace, I don't want you to come forward to take bread and take the cup. I want you to take Jesus today. Would you look to him today? Would you cry out today that he would save you and forgive you? And if you have questions about what that means, please come speak with me afterwards or any of our other leaders. We'd love to talk with you about that. We'd love to pray with you. We'd love to help you understand what it means to truly know and follow Christ. Those of you that will come forward, you can come forward when you're ready and tear off a piece of bread and take a small cup to drink. And what Jesus has done for you will be spoken over you. Let's pray. Father, we so thankful that your word tells the same story over and over and over again that we were lost but you came to save us that we were dead but you came to make us alive it's not anything that we do to figure that out it's not anything we do to muster that up in our own strength our own ability all we need is need we are dead men and women walking But you've made a way that as we look by faith to the one who was lifted up, that became the thing that was killing us, that became sin for us, that through that, that you change us and transform us, you forgive us and set us free, you make us new. And so Lord, I pray again this morning that for those in this room that don't yet know you, that are still seeking to be in charge of their life, to rule their life, that are still living lives of rebellion against you, God, that you would give them ears to hear and eyes to see and faith to believe. They would turn away from sin that leads to death and turn to Jesus who leads to life. Father, that's your doing. And so we pray, Holy Spirit, that you do that work here today. And Father, for my brothers and sisters that are here this morning, I pray that you would help us to look to Jesus by faith constantly and continually, that we would recognize our desperate need for him. Let us never tuck Jesus in our back pocket. Let us never put him on the shelf. Let us realize that we constantly need to look to him so the effects of the poison of sin no longer affect us, that we might walk in worship of you and obedience to you for your glory and for our good. Lord, we need your help. We pray that you would help us to continue to journey on this road with purpose, seeking to make much of you. We thank you for your grace that even as we stumble and fall, that you will never leave us. You will never forsake us. That as we draw near to you, you draw near to us. And so we rest in that this morning. Help us to draw near to you today, God. We love you. We thank you that you love us. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.